I'm Pastor Scott, lead pastor of the river. We hope that you are blessed by what you hear on, on this podcast. We hope that God's word continues to have power in your life. And we pray that uh, God makes himself known. Thanks for checking us out and uh, enjoy the service. Luke 15, we are working through the parable of the prodigal son, the lost son, prodigal father, lots of different names for this particular parable. And this morning we're kind of concentrate on the patient father. And as we gather around God's word and hear what he has to say to us about his grace and forgiveness, uh, let's pray for his blessing on our time of learning and growing. We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you move in our hearts and our minds, that you might teach us clearly more about you, more about your love, more about your grace, more about your forgiveness, more about how you empower and equip us to serve you, love you, follow you. And that's work that you alone can do in us. We pray you do it this morning through your spirit and because of the work of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Christ. Amen. You've been sitting for a while, so as we read this parable, I want to encourage you to stand and we will read God's word with the respect, certainly, that it deserves. From Luke chapter 15, beginning at verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his census, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead. And is alive again. He was lost and is found, so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you. And never disobeyed your, your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, come home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you were always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost 
and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Do any of you have strong-willed children? Are any of you a strong-willed child? It's funny, of course, because many of you are sitting beside your children right now, so you don't want to put up your hands and freak out your strong-willed child because when you go home and because they're strong-willed, they're going to push your buttons as much as they can to try to find out, what do you mean? What do you mean? I'm strong-willed. I'm not strong-willed. Tell me, tell me, tell me. You know, that sort of thing. Uh, Parenting a strong-willed child is a challenging thing. In fact, I remember, and some of you might remember this, back in the 70s and 80s, Dr. James Dobson, who eventually founded Focus on the Family, had a series of films on parenting. Does anybody remember those films back in the day? Many of you um, more senior folks, we'll call you, probably attended those. And I remember actually going to them because my parents wanted to go and they didn't have child care, so me and my brother had to sit through James Dobson's How to Parent a Strong-Willed Child film, and I remember being irritated like anything, and eventually we showed our strong will by pleading with them not to go, and me and my brother got to stay home from the films because we didn't want to go to them. But parenting a strong-willed child is a difficult thing, and it's something that... um, All of us as parents who have strong-willed children uh, know that it's fraught with dangers. In some ways, what you don't intend to happen as you try to guide and work through issues with your children, the exact things that you intend not to happen end up happening because your child has a strong will and navigating that is fraught with danger. You can say one thing, but it gets taken a completely different way. Anyone ever had that before? You can try to direct lovingly and with encouragement and with all softness and tenderness, and all of a sudden it blows up in your face. It's a difficult thing. And as we look at this parable of the lost son... We ask that question, how do you parent a strong-willed child in light of the father? Because the father actually does some parenting that if we look at it, especially with some of our um, having learned a lot about parenting views that many of us have because we've read books and gone to workshops and conferences and all that other sort of stuff, we're going to even be able to pose some pretty strong questions and ask whether or not the father in the parable was really that good of a parent. Because you look at what happens at the beginning of the story. At the beginning of the story, we don't even hear the Father's voice, do we? Look back at your scripture. You don't hear him addressing his son. 
We don't hear try him trying to convince his son to stay. We don't hear him imploring his son, don't do this. Don't go waste your inheritance. Don't go mess up your life by being a part of something that is going to cause you wounds. Now, I want you to imagine that you're in the father's place and you know that your child has probably what would amount to maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars in their pocket and they were ready to go leave home with that money and stake their claim on the world. Would you want to have a conversation with them perhaps about how that's going to go? Of course you would. Of course we would. Of course we'd want to say, hey, here's what you need to know. Invest, 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 or real estate, or precious metals, or maybe you start your business, but here are the dangers of that. And if you're going to get involved in in banking, here are some things that you need to know about the banking trade and all that other sort of stuff. Otherwise, you're going to lose it all and you're going to get messed up and be careful of quick, uh, getting quick rich, or getting rich quick schemes that are there just to, to take away as much money you have. Of course, we as a parent with our children would give them some sort of warning, but we don't hear that in the parable. We hear silence. And we wonder why. But I think part of it is that the father wants to keep the door open to a type of relationship with the son. Because here's the thing. Many of you know the stories of a strong-willed child who wanted to do something and a parent, maybe this is even your story, confronted them, challenged them, argued with them. And that relationship between that child and that parent still remains wounded even to this day because that child resented their parent's inability to give them freedom. But still, there's definitely some problematic parenting, at least from my perspective and the question that I, questions that I pose. Aren't there some sort of boundaries here? Isn't there some things that are off limits? I mean, doesn't the father sit down with his son and say, okay, we're going to talk about girls, Because it seems pretty clear from the story that either that talk hasn't happened or it's certainly been ignored. Or partying, or alcohol, or whatever it is. It's almost like the father says, here's your money, go. But I still pose the question, what would have happened if they would have argued? Because later on, we get the picture in the story, right, of the son sitting in the pig pen amid the excrement of unclean animals because this person was a Jew. And if that would have happened with the father and the son have having one of those knockdown, drag-out arguments that parents and children can have that shape and form the rest of their lives. What if they would have argued with that sort of argument? What would have the son thought in that moment amidst the pigs? Would he have thought, 
there's still a way to go home? Would he have thought that there is still a door open with my father because my father gave me the freedom to leave and now maybe he'll give me the freedom to come home? Perhaps if they would have argued, the son would have sent, said in resentment, even though the hired hands in my father's house have more than what I have now, I'm not welcome there. And besides, I hate that blankety-blank, blankety-blank anyway. It seems like amidst this type of parenting that the father exhibits with his son, that he is leaving something open for a future relationship of restoration. He gives freedom to him and says, you may go do what it is that you in your strong will want to do. And when the time is over, you can come home. He seems to be leaving the door open. So the silence at the beginning of the story maybe isn't as silent as it sounds. Now, when we look at our world, we want God to argue with those who are going astray now, don't we? We want God to be involved in these situations where it seems like people are going their own way, maybe even us going our own way or experiencing some of the challenges of life. We want God to get involved and powerfully show himself or argue with, with those things of the world that don't seem to be going along with him. We want God to speak and, and be present and change these things so that they are not the broken things that they are, but instead they go more his way. We want to see God active instead of allowing the sorts of rebellion that go on in the world. We want to see God active, changing and transforming. We ask the question, God, why aren't you fixing this? Why aren't you challenging this? Why aren't you talking to people? Why aren't you speaking into the lives of others so that some of this garbage doesn't go on? Why aren't you changing things? We believe you are the all-powerful God. We believe you are almighty. You can bring people to yourself. Why don't you just make your move and do it? Why does there have to be so much death? Why does there have to be so much hatred and injustice and conflict? Why doesn't God get involved and pull people to himself where we know God is a God of love, God is a God of hope, God is a God of grace? Why doesn't he pull people back to himself and change things? He has that mighty hand of power. Why doesn't he use it? And the problem is, is that this is exactly why some people reject God. Because he seems so very absent. How can God be active in my life if he can't deal with, I don't know, Israel? If he can't fix Israel, how can I believe and trust that he's going to be involved in my life? If he can't fix 
or change or transform the Ukraine, where people are dying, where there's rebellion going on, where innocent people in planes flying overhead are shot down. If he can't fix that, why? Can, how can I believe and trust that he will be in relationship with me, that he will restore me? If all this big stuff is going on that he seems impotent to fix, how can I trust him to show his love in my life. And the problem is, the problem of suffering is easily one of the most difficult things for the Christian faith to address in people's lives because they know suffering in their life. And if it seems like God is impotent in the world around them, then how can they trust in that sort of God when his silence seems so deafening in the world around them? Now, you may wonder, okay, how all of a sudden did we get from this place of the prodigal father parenting a strong-willed child to dealing with the big question of suffering in the world? Well, here's why. Because I think it speaks exactly to how God works in the suffering that we experience in this life. I think it speaks exactly to why God seems so silent in many situations. I don't think he's silent, but people feel that way. I think it speaks exactly to the issue of why God allows good things to happen to evil people and why God allows bad things to happen to good people. And that's because God is a patient God. We see that in how he interacts with the son when the son returns. He has been patient, but yet he's still watching the road. He hasn't gone from his home to the distant country to pull his son back. He hasn't gone and sent his servants over to the distant country to pull his son home and say, come home, son, be restored, come back. Things aren't, you're realizing things aren't in the world as you think they are. They're harder, they're more cutthroat, they're more broken, they're more sinful. Come home where you will be in a relationship of love. He doesn't do that, but instead he waits. And he waits with that sense of longing and with that sense of hope. We can see that because he notices his son on the road returning. And we don't exactly know what that looked like physically or what even what Jesus was trying to picture for his followers. But you can, in your mind, almost have that picture of the plains of Nebraska, which I saw this summer as we drive through them for what seemed like 15, 20 days you can think about it in this, in this big distance that there would all of a sudden be a shadow on the horizon. And a father who's in his home, maybe on the front porch, in a rocking chair or whatever, looking off in the distance. And because he loves his son, he knows what his walk looks like. And he says, look. That's him. He's home. I don't have to wait anymore. 
Now I can go to him. And so he does. The father leaps from the porch of his home, goes running down the lane, goes running down the road, and approaches his son and doesn't even let him get through the much-rehearsed speech that he had ready to give to his father. He waited, the father did, until his son said, I want to come back. I want to be with my dad. I know what's out there isn't good. I need what I can have at home. The father had waited until there was a relationship, big word, of reciprocity. If he would have forced his son to come home, if he would have sent his servants to kidnap him, to bring him home, if he would have said to him even before he left, don't go, don't go, don't go, the relationship that he would have had with his son would have been one of resentment and control. But now because his son was the one returning home, it was a relationship of reciprocity. And God is an eternally patient God to seek out that sort of relationship with us. He wants his people to love him. He wants in their hearts for them to want a relationship with him. And so when we look at the world around and we see the difficulties faced in this world, we realize quickly God is, it's not that God is silent. It's that he is patient. It's something that he's infinitely patient to have. And when that relationship comes, it is free. It is abundant. It is much more than it is thought of or expected or imagined by the person who receives it. We know that, those who know the grace of Christ. We don't expect it to be a certain way. And then he surprises us with rain in August because God is that imaginative and creative. And we don't think that this thing can be redeemed or restored. We don't think that this relationship that can be fixed. We don't think this addiction can be addressed. And then we see the picture of people who've been through those stories of brokenness be baptized and enter into new life. We don't see the grandchild or we don't think the grandchild who has walked away from the Lord can ever be restored. We don't think our gay child, the one who has walked away into their distant country, can be brought back. And yet, God has the capacity to surprise us because He is patient. And he is at work in the lives of those whom He loves. And we know from Scripture that God so loves the world, which means he's active everywhere, being patient, waiting for people to come to him. So when we see the big questions of suffering, when I look at Israel and its complexity, when I see what's happening in the Ukraine, certainly I want God to intercede and redeem what is broken. But I also know God is patient so that people will come to him. Because he knows that any relationship that is forced with his people won't be what it can be 
if it's not a reciprocal relationship of love. And we know that for the big things, just as we know them for the small ones. I've had people who've come to me and said, you need to talk with my son. You need to talk with my dad. You need to talk with my husband. You need to talk with my daughter or granddaughter because they're so messed up right now. God needs to bring them back. And God can certainly use a conversation with me to bring them back into faith or maybe bring them to a new faith. But oftentimes I'll simply tell people this. I'll ask them the question, are you praying? And they say every day, And I will say, be patient. Be patient. Because if you and I and the community and people who love them are praying for them, we know God is at work. Be patient so that when that time comes where there is a relationship of reciprocity where that person can say, I need to go home. God will meet them through the power of his spirit. And God is at work in that situation even now to get them to that place. That's why I said last week why God allows things to get so messy and ugly in people's lives. Because he loves us so much that he would rather we go through the pit of fire and the dregs of what humanity has to offer if it brings us to love with him than to provide us a good life that doesn't end up in relationship with him. God is so very patient. God wants this sort of relationship with all of his children. I want you to imagine with me for a moment, imagine what the world would look like if God did things differently. What would happen in Israel? I wonder if God were to simply come down and force peace Would there be relationships of love that people would want for God? Maybe some. Maybe some would be so grateful that the fighting had ended that they would want to know who God is. But I wonder sometime if people from Hamas would want that. Or people who are Jewish who hate the Arabs or the Palestinians. Is that what they would want, is a relationship with God because he brought peace? Or would they instead decide, no, we don't want that. We want things our way. Because ultimately, isn't all of humanity a selfish group of people who want things their own way? The problem, if God were to interact with his creation in a form or a fashion that we would choose, is we would not see the amazing and incredible and astounding things that God can do when we are patient and allow him to do his work. I'm reading right now the autobiography of Nelson Mandela. And those of you who were alive in the 70s, 60s, you remember the mess that was South Africa, don't you? You remember how ugly it was in South Africa when people had to be fearful on the streets that they would be killed if the color of their skin wasn't the right color. 
That there were people who were fearful every night of being arrested in their homes because if they were the wrong color, the police could come, evict them, put them on a list, and force them not to travel anywhere. You remember the stories of bloodshed, of conflict, of all the stuff that was junky and horrible from the South African story. And the shame of it is, is that that story changed. And many of you young folks don't know it. You don't know that God did something in South Africa to change that world. Because a people were patient. A people were praying. And God was at work in that to restore it. And now if you go to South Africa, maybe some of you have. It's an incredible country where God continues to work to restore people who hated each other before now to be an intimate relationship. We have a wonderful example in South Africa of what God does when his people are in prayer and patient for us to do that with all. With Israel, with Ukraine, with your grandson, with your son, with your grandchild, with whoever, with your parent. Be patient as God is patient. Be in prayer as God works. And trust that those strong-willed people will be restored. God ultimately wants intimacy with us. And intimacy cannot be forced or demanded. Think about that in your marriage. Can you force intimacy? Can you force closeness? Oh, you can do work. You can do things. But I can't go up to Kristen and I can't say to her and hold her in a hug and say, be close to me, be close to me, and force her to do that and expect that it's going to go well. Because it's not. You can't force intimacy. It can't be demanded. It has to be reciprocal in Christ the world has been given a way back from its distant country not just individually but as all of humanity and that way is free and it's complete and it's full of hope and God will be patient and work in the hearts that some might seek restoration this is what God does He works in the lives of those he calls to himself. And he is so patient that sometimes it takes a decade or two or four or eight even. That's how patient God is in order to seek that relationship of intimacy. And when it finally comes, it comes in abundance with beauty and with hope and with life because now it's reciprocal the 80 year old person who finally realizes there's no other way that I can do this life except through Jesus all of a sudden says and I love him something that could never be forced upon them to say for 80 years, suddenly comes out of their mouth freely. 
And God longs for that. And when those words are spoken in freedom, not demanded, that's when the beauty of an intimate relationship with God comes. And that's how he's worked in you and me. Think about the patience that he showed in your life. Think about the patience that he continues to show. He waits for you, longs for you, hopes for you to come to that place where you say to him with all that you are and all that you do, I want to love you and I want to serve you and I'm going to give you my life in everything. He waits for that to happen. And that moves us to obedience out of gratitude. It's interesting, I just had a conversation with somebody who's been in the church for a long time. We have this thing that we call the Heidelberg Catechism. Heidelberg Catechism is a teaching document that's somewhere near 500 years old in the life of the church, and it helps us understand some basics of the Christian faith. It's divided up into three things. Does anybody know what those three sections are? Sin, salvation, service. And there's another one that all start with G's. I don't remember the second one. Guilt, grace, gratitude. Thank you, Pastor Bill. Bill always knows the answers. Just ask Harriet. (laughs) Guilt, grace, gratitude. Does anybody know where how we are supposed to live in obedience to God comes in those three sections? Don't answer, Bill. Would it come through guilt? Or would it come as a response to grace? Who thinks it's in guilt or grace? Who, Who thinks it's in guilt? No? What about grace? Of course. It's in gratitude. Do you know, and I hope you are reminded, you don't do faith. You don't live out obedience. You aren't a good Christian. You aren't a fervent disciple of Jesus because you want more grace. You do it because you're saying, thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for what you have given me. And you know what? Unless you get to the place of being able to say thank you, the obedience will never fully and completely come. And God is so patient that he will do his work for a very, very long time to get you and I to a place of saying thank you. And when we can utter those words, when a grandchild, a grandson, when a rebel on the West Bank, when a soldier in Ukraine when a racist in South Africa can come to the place to say, thank you, Jesus. God comes in and restores hope and life and abundance in a way that can't even be grasped. Would you pray with me? Thank you, God, for your grace that we know through Jesus Christ. Thank you, 
that you have been patient with us as your people, allowing us to go off into our distant country in our own strong will and desire for independence. You have allowed us to go and reap the consequences of our own behavior so that, Lord, we might be able to say we want to go home. We know that this is empty, that this is full of death and loss and grief and pain and suffering, and we don't want to live here anymore. We want to be in relationship with you. We want to come home, and we want to say thank you with our lives for you bringing us back. Thank you that you do that work in us. Help us to be patient as you are with ourselves and with others, with situations that seem so complex and vast and hard. Help us to be patient as you are, being in prayer, imploring you to act, being active as you call us, in obedience. Lord, you do your work through us to change your world, and may we experience that same patience and also May we rejoice when we see that patience pay off just as you do. We pray these things all in the name of Christ. Amen. We hope that you are blessed by what you hear. Maybe you're checking out our website more and seeing things that you uh, are wondering whether or not you might want to participate in them. Feel free. Contact us in the office. Give us a call. Send us an email. Um, We'd love to hear from you. Love to answer any questions that you have. Thanks for checking us out.